in Scripture. Therefore, so what do we do? We take a look back to see what it is there for. It's an old pastor trick to get you to look backwards there. But Paul has just finished up with his put off and put on section of this letter. We've just talked about putting on uh, generosity, take, taking or putting off things like lying and, and uh, corrupt speech and things like this. So Paul is, is finishing that up. And as, he, as we have every week, Paul is going to do again. He is going to remind the Ephesians that they are to do these things, whatever he commands them to do here, whatever the Holy Spirit causes him to write down, whatever the Holy Spirit causes him to command these new Christians in Ephesus, that they are to do these things not to earn or gain an identity in Christ. That is settled in Jesus, but that it is to reveal their identity in Christ. And we will see that again even through today. So he's saying in short order, this is who you are now. This is who you are. Nothing can change that. God loves you. God is your father. Nothing can change that no matter what. So start acting like it. That is what he is saying over and over. And then we see the word therefore. Paul is saying now that you know to do all of these things, now that you have all this practical advice, all this practical life commands, now that you know to do these things, there is something that you should do that overlays all of that, that overlays everything that you do. Every command I give you should reflect this one thing. No matter how practical the scenario is, no matter how impractical the scenario is, there is one intention that we are striving for. If you can imagine it's like a pyramid, you've got do not steal and be generous as one layer. You've got do not talk this way, but you talk and building one another up. You forgive one another. But at the pinnacle of this is what we are going to look at today. It is ultimately always what we are striving for at the top of this pyramid. And he tells the Ephesians something here that is not uttered anywhere else in Scripture. These exact words, imitate God or be imitators of God, are nowhere else in Scripture, and yet there may be no higher calling for Christians in all of Scripture. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which if he says it, it's true, says, there is no higher statement of Christian doctrine that can be conceived or imagined than that we are called to imitate God. Paul tells us here that in all things, and he's going to get specific again next week, he is going to get specific again in numerous scenarios as we go through marriage, as we go through raising our kids, as we go through work again in a different way as, than we did before. But he's going to get practical again, but he is reminding them before he even gets back to the practical, everything you do, every last thing you do, every breath you take is geared towards this to a, a, in an attempt to imitate God, to reflect his character and nature in all things. This is a very high, high calling. It's very hard to do. It is a tall order to imitate God. It's an even taller order if we are imitating someone we don't know. If we are imitating someone that we barely know. And that's what some of what we will look at today. But before we jump in, I do want to point out that Paul does something that all good teachers, all good preachers, all all good writers should do. He gives them some reassurance. He doesn't just say, be imitators of God, period, end of sentence. Moving on, we're going to talk about something else. He reminds them yet again, just in a little subtle way, who they are. He says, imitate God as beloved children. 
He is reminding them again of their identity. He is reminding them again that you're not left to this alone. You're not just asked to imitate God or be generous or be any of these things on your own. You are beloved children. He is sweetly reminding them that they are loved, that they are cared for, that God is with them. I have a friend that I know, uh, I only know him an hour at a time, Monday through Friday at like five in the morning. Uh, we, he goes to the gym. He's an older guy. He's 55 years old, but he, is, he, is, he works harder than anybody in the gym. But he comes in there all the time. He's a Christian. We talk to each other about the Lord all the time. Uh, we try to encourage one another. He sends me stuff in email. I send him stuff. Watch this video. Read this. But he's, high, he's just always positive. He's always encouraging. He's just a great guy to be around. Well, he, when I used to go on Saturdays, my wife and I would go. This was before Judah came along. We would take Nora with us. She loves going there. For some reason, she's, she asked to go to the gym to play. It's, she's weird. Anyway, so we would take her. And as we're leaving, we would run into Neville. And we'd run into him, and he would say, you know, hi to her, and he would meet her, and he'd, you know, he, he, he has a daughter of his own that's, that's older, but he, he's just very sweet to her and talks to her, and she would always talk to him and all of these things. Well, one day, he came up to me on a weekday, and he said, hey, man, I just wanted to tell you something. He's like, I know you know your daughter's beautiful, which, I mean, let's all be honest, we've seen Nora. She is. And I said, I do know that. And he said, but something more important than that. And he looked at me and he said, you can just tell that she's loved. She just exudes the fact that you and your wife love her extremely well and she knows it. She's confident in it. She carries it. She exudes it. To this, I told him I got, I got sweat in my eye, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't sweating yet. But it was one of the best compliments I've ever gotten that it was obvious that I loved my daughter. And it's because loved children act differently. They just, they just act differently. They just exude the fact that they are loved. I hope all of my kids always know this, but I hope that that causes them to act accordingly, to act as beloved children as we are called to here. And this is what Paul is reiterating. You're not children that's, that are just adopted and kept at arm's length. You're not children that are just sealed and kept at arm's, arm's reach. No, you are brought into the family of God. You are brought into an intimate relationship. You are loved. And here's the best part. There's nothing you can do about it. God is going to love you because God loves you and you can't change that. So it's not these behaviors that makes him love you more. It's not that when you don't do these behaviors, he loves you any less. It is we are showing that we are loved. We are showing the love of God in our actions. And this is what Paul is saying here. Imitate your daddy. Be like your daddy. Be like your father. Do so knowing you are loved by him, though. Because see, here's the thing that God knows and inspired Paul to write here, is we are all imitators. Every person in this room, you can act like you're a rebel and you're so much different than everybody else and you're blah, blah, blah. We're all imitators. We're all conformists at heart. Now, some of us are less than than others, but no one in here is, is wearing really anything. Look, we're all wearing basically the same clothes. Oh, the fashion, our haircuts are all the same. We are all imitators. I was counseling a, a resident at Hope House this week. I'll spare you the details how we got there, but my question to him is, hey, why don't you like yourself very much? It was a legit question. It was, I wasn't trying to be funny. 
but just the way he was talking led me to ask him that question. He said, man, he goes, for years, I've just, I just want to be normal. I just want to blend in. I just want to be, I, I'm tired of being weird and different. And he's not that weird. He's not that different, especially in his current settings. But he feels that way. And I asked him, I said, well, define normal, because to me, everybody's normal is kind of different. My, my normal is different from your normal. Everybody in here's normal is a little bit different. He said, man, I just don't want to stand out. I just want to blend in. He said the word lost. He said, I feel like I'm just myself. I'm just lost. I don't even know who I am. He said, before I came here, I would spend time just imitating the rappers I saw on TV because that's the kind of lifestyle I kind of wanted to lead. Or I would imitate the people I saw on TV just because it looked like they had kind of what I was looking for and what I wanted in life. He said, before I would have to go do something, and what he meant by that was beat somebody up or, or take his stuff back from them or whatever he had to do. He's like, man, that's just not me. I hate seeing people hurt. But I would psych myself up by watching movies and, and videos, and I would, just, I would just do what they did. I would say the things that they said and hope it intimidated the person like it did on the show. And I, I thought to myself, man, God really loves giving me sermon illustrations in the week that I'm preaching. So that's why... I took a second to realize, okay, maybe it's not just sermon illustration, maybe I should actually talk to him. But I told him that we are all doing that in our own ways. We're all imitating something we see. We are all kind of going with something we see that works. Now that may change throughout our lives. We may at one point be imitating this and at another point imitating that. But we are all imitators. God knows we're going to imitate something. God knows we we're going to imitate someone. I remember times when I was younger, I would follow my dad. We worked on a farm my whole, my whole childhood, and it would snow. And I remember walking behind him, and I feel like a lot of guys are going to identify with this if they ever walked with their dad in the snow. But what would you do? You try to jump into his footprints. Now, I was five foot three to the end of my sophomore year. I don't know how tall that. That's probably, anyway, I was short. Okay, so I had to like really lunge when I was little to try to get in these footsteps. But I just wanted to be like him. I wanted to literally follow in his footsteps. I wanted to be like him. I, find, I found myself saying things that he would say. I found myself making jokes that he would tell. I still to this day do that. Every adult in here, raise your hand if you have ever gone, man, I sound just like my mom or dad. Kids, look around. You're going to do this. Even though right now you're like, I'll never be like my mom or dad. We all said that too. Welcome. Sorry. Get over it. We have all done it. Again, program living standpoint. I deal with guys from all different kinds of walks of life. They've struggled with addiction for five years, 10 years, 20 years. They've lived here. They've lived there. They've lived wherever. But you know what? 98% of them, I can only think of two residents out of about 50 we've had come through there. Now, some of those were there for like 10 hours. I don't really know their story, but that's beside the point. Uh, but out of the 50 or so we've had come through there, I can think of two that didn't have an awful relationship with their dad. And by awful, I mean dad wasn't there, dad left, dad died, not his fault, but it still has an effect on the child, right? Dad abused them. Dad abused alcohol. Dad OD'd. Dad did this. First time I ever used weed, I was with dad. First time I ever did this, dad gave it to me. All of these guys come through. It's a generational thing because they are going to imitate something. 
They are going to follow in the footsteps of someone. And unfortunately for them, they had a bad example. They had something to follow. They had something to imitate. But it led them astray. And God knows that we are prone to this. It comes extremely natural to us to just kind of imitate what works. And to them, that's what worked at the time. Luckily, if they've come to our program, hopefully they've seen that it's not working and they're hoping to imitate something else and we can preach the gospel to them. But we have good examples of this. We have bad examples of this because everyone imitates something. So he tells us to do something very natural But then he tells us to do something that is only supernatural. He's saying imitate comes very natural. Imitate God. Do what is right. Do what God would do. That is not natural to us. That is not our natural tendency. You see, just like we talked about last week, we cannot do this alone. Any of these practical commands, we cannot do them alone. We cannot do them. We can't just muster up enough willpower. We can't just grit our teeth and do it alone. The Bible is very, very clear on this point. Over and over in Scripture, we are reminded we are not righteous. We are not holy on our own. Which is pretty obvious if you just look around. You can look around the world and go, yeah, no one is righteous and no one is holy. But the Bible is also clear that we don't even really want to be. Left to ourselves, We don't want to be holy. We don't want to be righteous. We don't want to be godly. We don't seek after it. We're not striving for it. We don't desire for it. We will imitate almost anything else. We don't naturally imitate godliness. We don't naturally imitate holiness. We don't naturally imitate righteous living. That is why Paul is commanding it here. Because it is a change from what they are doing. A change from what the, the way they were living. We must be told to live differently than what feels natural and feels normal. You see, this command, of course, is still applicable to us. But in context, it was given to a bunch of new Christians that are still kind of like, what do we do? They're in Ephesus. Ephesus was notoriously a sinful and pagan port town. There was people kind of in and out all the time. There was pagan worship going on. It was characterized and immersed by rituals that involve sexual activity and worship to other gods. So these Ephesians were already imitating. They were just imitating this kind of worship. They were imitating, well, this is what the people of Ephesus do. I guess that's what we will do. And Paul comes in and he says, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't imitate them. You don't imitate these other gods and the worship of these other gods. You imitate Yahweh, you imitate the God of the universe. You imitate the God, not a God or not some gods and not these people. Now we'll look more specifically into that next week. Pastor Todd gets the joy of uh, talking about sexual immorality. But this is what the Ephesians are coming out of. And they don't know what to do. And Paul says, imitate God. And that is why this is still a timeless command for us even here Today. This is why imitate God is still so poignant today. You see, to finish up that story about the resident who just wanted to be normal, I told him at the end, I said, man, that's actually pretty easy if you just want to blend in. Really? You just keep doing what you were doing and don't go to jail for it? Because that's the only taboo thing that's really happened, culturally speaking, is that he went to jail for it. All of the things he was doing 
with the, the other gender, we'll call it. All of the things he was doing substance abuse-wise. All of the things he was doing selling those things. And all of the things he was doing uh, with his violent tendencies. If he hadn't gone to jail, nobody would really call him out on those things. Now, obviously, if he showed up here doing it, we'd be like, hey, what are you doing? But culturally speaking, if he just wants to blend in, just do those things. And here's the thing, is we look back at Ephesus and we go, oh, they were doing all of these pagan things and they were worshiping these gods. And we look at it as a, a wooden totem that they're worshiping and we're like, we don't do that. But everything that I just explained that was happening in Ephesus, how is that not America right now? How is this command not just as countercultural in America as it was in Ephesus. You see, this has been the case since even before Paul wrote this. This is why it's so countercultural, because it's been going on since the beginning of time. Fashion, haircuts, cars, decoration for houses, trends go in, trends go out. Why do you think celebrity endorsements happen? They'll pay people millions of dollars just to say, Man, I wear this watch and it tells time just like your. I mean, sorry, I'd wear this watch and it's better than yours. That's what they're supposed to say, right? Why do they do that? Because they know we'll go, Roger Federer wears that and he's the greatest tennis player of all time. I better put on the Rolex or put on the time. What, I don't even know what he endorses. But trends take root and we don't even know why. Who in here knows what flossing is? Some. I didn't expect everyone to know, Okay. And don't ask me to do it because I can't. Bottle flipping. Anybody ever flipped a bottle and tried to land it on the... Uh, I did that with a paint can this morning. It was really amazing. I landed it right on the top. Bottle flipping. Fidget spinners. Who owns one of those? Who knows where it is right now? I had to put my hand down because I'm done. Nobody, right? But man, you had... I'm going to have one of those. Where? I go to the mall. They didn't have them. I, I ran all over town looking for one of those. I had a road trip coming up, and I wanted something to fidget or spin, whichever verb is in there. Here's one. Recent, Tide Pods. Anybody know what the deal with that? In case you don't, it's a trend that started on the Internet where kids, don't do this, children, eat a Tide Pod. You may not even know what a Tide Pod is. It's laundry detergent. You know who taught me laundry detergent tastes like, you know what? My mom, when she washed my mouth out with soap. I don't have to watch videos on the internet of somebody biting into a Tide Pod and going, ugh, it's so nasty. But you know what? There's millions of them with millions of views of people eating laundry detergent. This is how we will imitate people. These are just examples of disciple making that the culture does. And that the culture is really, really good at. Because everybody in here right now is going, Tide Pods. And yet, a lot of the people that actually did it on video probably said that too. Until enough videos got enough hits and they were like, ah, I mean, it can't be that bad. And then a kid died. I know that's a somber ending to that story. Sorry, don't eat a Tide Pod. All right. But you see, these are just examples on why it's so incumbent upon us to do what is not natural. And that's imitate God and imitate his character and nature because we're going to imitate something. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10 says, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. Paul knew this. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, it may look differently because we have the internet. It may look differently because Tide Pods didn't exist and fidget spinners didn't exist when Paul was writing this. But there's nothing new under the sun. We're all going to imitate something. We're all going to imitate ungodly behavior. It's going to become very natural to us. And God knows without directing that imitation in a godly manner, it is going to lead us to fail. And we will fall for anything, even something stupid like Tide Pods. Even something that initially we go, that's dumb, I would never do that. But then you inch closer and you closer and closer to it because it seems to be working. It seems to be doing something right for that person. And again, I'm not talking about these weird trends. I'm talking about lifestyles that you look around and you go, they seem happy. They seem okay. I'll just imitate them. This is why Paul and Scripture in general remind us so often of our identity. This is why we reiterate it every week in this sermon series. Our behaviors don't create, they don't seal, they don't solidify, they do not make our identity. Christ does that. Our behaviors reveal our identity. They reveal who we are following, who we are worshiping. Who we are imitating reveals who we worship. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, and other places, to be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He knew he was, who he was worshiping. He knew who he was following. Therefore, because he knew who he was following, he could tell people, follow me as I follow that guy. He's got it perfect. I'm trying to be. If you will come alongside of me, we'll go try to be like Jesus together. But he knew who he was worshiping, even though he was the chief of sinners. He knew who his heart was going after. And this is what we should be living and striving for. This is what we are called to do in Ephesians 5.1. We should be willing and able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not, eh, I wouldn't do what I do. Or, we wouldn't verbally say that, but we're scared when if we think people are watching because we know we're not imitating God. As parents, this is how we should conduct ourselves in our homes. We should want our kids to imitate us because we know we are following God. All the while being willing to say sorry when we mess it up because we're going to mess it up. But it should not be a scary proposition to go, my kids are going to grow up to be like me in some ways. This is who we want them to imitate, us as we imitate Christ. We've all been there when our kid says something. Where'd you hear it? Never mind. It was me, right? The, what, was the, what was the drug PSA back in the 80s? I learned it from you, Dad. Like, it, was, it was pretty dramatic, like about drug use. Where did you learn to do this, son? I learned it from watching you, Dad. That's scary to us, right? It was supposed to scare us into don't do drugs because your kids are watching. It shouldn't be scary to us if we were Christians. It shouldn't scare us to know Nora and Judah are going to grow up to be like mommy and daddy because we are imitating Christ. We should be so radically conforming to Jesus and his example. It shouldn't bother us. And again, this is not a call to perfection. It's a call to strive for perfection. One of my dad's favorite sayings growing up was, do as I say, not as I do. Now, he usually, usually said this in a joking way, and it was about something kind of small, but that's kind of how we want to live life, right? We want to say the right things out in public. 
and we want people to, to follow what we say, but we don't really, deep down, if we really get down to the meat of it, want them to do what we do because we know sometimes that we are not doing what we are supposed to be doing or we're not backing up our words. Jesus said, come, follow me, because he knew John 5, 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. He was perfectly imitating his father. So therefore, he calls us to perfectly imitate him. He is the perfect example of all of this, those things. And then in John 17, 18, he tells us, I have done this. I have followed the Father. I have done what he has commanded me to do. And he prays to God, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he is saying, I have perfectly imitated God. Now you perfectly imitate me. I am sending you out. But how are we sent? How are we imitate God the Father as his beloved children? Luckily, Paul answers that question in verse 2. It says, we walk in love. Now, just as last week, there's a very important caveat at the end of the sentence. Again, it does not say, walk in love, period. All right, go do it. It says, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the world is going to tell you that love conquers everything, that love solves everything, that if you'll just love people and everybody carries that out, that it will be perfect, which I actually, for the most part, agree with. The problem is, is where biblical and worldly knowledge or uh, where biblical and worldly truth start to diverge is what does love look like? What does that really mean? Because the world will tell you, that to love someone, you just tolerate everything they do. You never call them out. You never judge them. You never say they're wrong. You never say anything bad about anybody. As a matter of fact, just don't even disagree with them because that apparently equals hate in today's culture. So loving someone is either some romantic feeling that you can fall in and out of just kind of on a daily basis or it is this you just agree with literally everything that I do and I'll agree with everything you do. Perfect harmony. That is... Not what the Bible says. That is not the definition of love the Bible gives. First off, this idea of walking in love. I am in no way going to try to pronounce the Greek word for it. If you want, ask Pastor Todd. When he gets back, he'll tell you. But the translation of it means to conduct one's life. It is to conduct one's life. Everything we do, right out the gate, this idea of walking is participation. It's action. It's doing. It is Walking in love, it is participation in love. This means we are not to do certain things with love. We are to do all things with love. This is what should define us. This is what should be the overarching theme of the way we interact with people, the way we live, the way we breathe. We should walk in love. Secondly, this idea of love being a feeling goes right out the window when we see John, 1 John 3.18. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This blatantly tells us that love is something we do. It is a verb. It is not a feeling that we hope to, to harness and to, to hold on to tightly. It is something we do. It is something we are commanded to do. And if it is something we are commanded to do, then it is something we can do. This isn't a command to like everyone. We have no control. Sometimes you just meet someone and you're like, I don't know, I don't like that guy. Right? That's how most people meet me. 
I grow on them, though. It takes a while. I grow on them. Then they like me. But it's not a command to like everyone because we don't really have control over that. But it is a command to love everyone because we do have control over that. We are commanded here in many other places to love, to walk in love. And it tells us here that we are to love like Jesus loved because he was the ultimate imitator of God the Father. So we love like he loved. We imitate Christ as he perfectly imitates God. Now this is where the rest of this could go any number of directions because there's any thousands if not more ways to describe how you love other people, how you carry yourself in love. However, in an attempt to remain faithful to this text, I think there are three specific ways in which this verse calls us to do this. So we will look at those. First, we are to love as Christ loved us. Now, again, this one could literally go almost any direction because Christ was the perfect example of every type of love, whether he was rebuking, whether he was encouraging, whether he was, he was showing the way, or whether he was encouraging others to show the way. All of these things Christ carried out perfectly. But in light of the first three chapters of Ephesians, namely chapter 1, I think we should see this as Christ loving us in a gracious, unconditional type of love. You see, we see in chapter 1 that Christ is the one who sought us. Christ is the one who pursued us. Christ is the one who redeemed us, adopted us, sealed us. Christ is the one who came after us when we weren't really seeking after any of these things. He pursued us. So how does this play out in our lives? It's the very same way. We are to love as Christ loved us. We are to pursue right relationships with people. We are to love unconditionally, meaning... They don't have to earn it. That's how we want to operate, though, isn't it? We want someone to earn it, someone to deserve my love, then I'll give it to them. And yet, as Christ loved us, that's not how that worked, is it? We didn't deserve this. We are to walk in love when it is difficult, when we disagree with someone, when we have different worldviews, when we have a different religion, when we are in opposition, when we have to rebuke them as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we do anything, whether we have anything in common with them or nothing in common with them, we are to walk in love. This means that we treat all people, every living soul, with value, dignity, and respect, even and especially when they have nothing to offer back to us. They had nothing to give back. We are, we are going to be on the losing end of this deal, and that is what we are called into. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Jonathan Edwards when he said, you contributed nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary because this puts it fully on Jesus. This puts everything of salvation fully on him except for the fact that I needed salvation. May we never forget that because that, as Christ loved us, is how we are to love when they bring nothing to the table but baggage. They bring nothing to the table but negative. They bring nothing to the table but their need. We are to walk in love. When we find it most difficult to love those. This is why Jesus mirrored this in his life. Read through the Gospels. Who did Jesus hang out with? He didn't hang out with the rich people except to call them out. Right? That was the only time he was really around the rich people is to tell them how bad they were and how much they needed repentance and how their money wasn't going to save them or their good deeds weren't going to save them. But hanging out, just chilling. I don't, Jesus chilling, I don't know. 
It was with the poor people. It was with the less thans. It was with the have-nots. It was with people that could offer him nothing in return for his, what he was doing for them, the love he gave them, the care he gave them, the support he gave them. They had nothing to give him. And this is the kind of love we are to walk in, this pursuing, unconditional love that wants nothing in return. That's the other key. Because too many times we don't expect anything in return, but we kind of want it. But we have to go into this knowing that's not going to happen, and we love anyway because we know that it brings honor and glory to God's name through our obedience in this. This also means we're to walk in love when we have been wronged. We talked about forgiveness last week or the week, I think it was last week. Jesus loved us with a gracious love. We did not deserve it. And furthermore, we continually spit in his face even after he's given it to us. He's forgiven us, he has shown us grace, and we turn our back on that every single day, multiple times a day. And what does Jesus do? Welcomes us back, calls us back. He prodigal sons us and runs to us instead of us having to come all the way back to him. He graciously loves us. And we take it for granted. Everyone in this room, I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands, has felt taken for granted in their life. And not one of us has been like, man, this is awesome. I love feeling taken for granted and not appreciated in any way. We hate it. It's never pleasant. And yet, Jesus, who deserves more credit than we could ever imagine, is taken for granted by millions of people every single day. And yet, his grace and his forgiveness is offered time and time and time, and time, and time again, because his love perfectly imitates the Father. We must walk in this type of love. May the world see us in the grace we give others, the forgiveness we give others, the love that we give others, even and especially when they don't deserve it, and when they can offer nothing in return. And may they not see, man, Justin's awesome. May they not see, man, Adam is just, he's just such a good-hearted fellow. Maybe they see Jesus May this love be a reflection of the one who has shown us such a great love, shown us such a great grace, shown us such great persistent forgiveness. Verse 2 goes on to say that we are to love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is the second way in which we walk in love, sacrificially. This means we give of our time, talent, and treasure. You hear that all the time here at Mission Church. See, it's easy to love when it doesn't cost us anything or when we are getting something in return. It's easy to love when we don't know the outcome, so we're willing to kind of go into it. But as Christ loved us, he came knowing the outcome, knowing he was going to have to sacrifice, pay the ultimate price, and came anyway. We are to give of ourselves at no concern for the cost to us. Amy Carmichael, uh, some of you may have heard of her, some of you may not. She's a missionary in India in the late 1800s and then about almost half of the 1900s. She spent about 50 years in India. She set up orphanages. She, she, um, she did a lot of things. She wrote a lot of books. But the biggest contribution I would say that she did is she started an orphanage for young women that were coming out of what we would call now the sex trafficking industry. So she would welcome them in. She basically became their mother. They, they all kind of called her mom by the end of her stint there. Uh, she wrote many, many books. And one of her more famous quotes is, One can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. 
to truly walk in love like Christ who gave himself up for us, we must do the same. We must be willing to pour ourselves completely and utterly into others because we love them, because we want to reflect Christ's love. This means we will be open up to being hurt. This means people will take advantage of us. I hear this all the time, especially at Program Living because of the lifestyle they're coming out of. But every one of us really want to ask this question. Does that mean people can just walk all over us? Pretty much. This doesn't mean we don't stand up for ourselves. This doesn't mean we don't speak the truth and speak what is right. That's not what I'm saying. But to truly love them as Christ loved us and gave, giving ourselves up for them, we're going to have to open ourselves up to being hurt and being hurt and being hurt, being taken advantage of, being ta- by the same person. I don't mean we keep doing this, well, he's done. I hope you did it too. Same person over and over and over again. This means we don't give up on people. This means we might get rejected. This definitely means we're going to give our time, which is our most precious commodity. You can't make any more of that. I can try to make more money, right? I can do that. I can't make more time. If I give you my time, it's gone. And that is what we are called to here. Christ came to become one of us knowing he would experience all of these things. Not there's a chance. Knowing all of these things, and yet he came anyway. We are simply called to do it with the possibility of those being the case, but being willing to do that. Loving others as we love ourselves, because that's what the Bible calls us to do, is a tall task, but we give ourselves chance after chance after chance after chance, right? Because I've disappointed me a lot more than any of y'all have disappointed me, and yet I, I still love me. I still give myself another chance and another chance. We are to love ourselves or love others as we love ourselves to pursue this imitation of God. This last part of verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the third way this passage calls us to love. It reiterates the sacrifice, but it says walking in love must be God-directed or for God or to God. This is not for our credit. You see, Jesus gave himself up for us, but to God. He was loving God in those moments. See, Jesus very much loves us. I want everyone in here to know that. But he loves God more. And that's why he was willing to die, because we did not deserve it. He gave us himself up for us to be saved, but for God to be glorified in the saving of us. The ultimate reason he came to live and to die was not for our sakes, it was for God's sake, for God's glory and we simply reap the benefits see this part of the passage harkens back to the old testament when they would offer sacrifices on the altar to god won't go into all of the details of that but as they did it it said that the burnt offerings would be a pleasing aroma to the lord which means that god accepted the sacrifice in place of the people it was forgiveness for them because god had accepted their sacrifice in the same way but in a once for all sense Jesus was a pleasing aroma to God. He accepted his sacrifice. Jesus stepped into our place where we deserve to be and gave himself up for us as a pleasing sacrifice to God. This frees us up to live and to walk and to love in all of these difficult ways that we have just talked about. But now we are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to the one who has already paid our debt. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God for others, just like it says Jesus did here. 
2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What do you smell like? Sounds funny? I don't want to know some of you. But what does your life smell like? What do people sense when you're around? What aroma do you give off? This means we walk in love so that we can be a fragrance of God to others. And it's not because they deserve it. It is because God deserves it. When we walk in unconditional sacrificial love, we are really offering ourselves as a living and pleasing sacrifice to the one who deserves our effort. I use this example all the time. Almost every day she does. But there are days where Stephanie does not deserve me to love her well. The days where I don't deserve her love are much more frequent. Okay? But we still do it. Why? Because we're offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, not to our spouse. So on days where they don't deserve it, it's easy on the days they deserve it. We just carry that out. Love you. Love you too. You're awesome. I'm awesome. We're awesome. But on the days where one of us isn't, we woke up on the wrong side of the bed, or whatever the case may be, we still love each other. Why? It's a decision. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's an action we carry out because we are a living sacrifice to God. We are offering it to Him for His sake, for His glory, not for the person we are loving. This is how it frees us up to do it when we're not feeling it, when we don't really want to love the person in front of us whether that's at program living or whether that's in our lives at work, whether that's someone who has wronged us over and over again. I don't feel like I want to love this person. You do it anyway because we're doing it out of a sense of worship to God and he always deserves it. These are the three ways we see here to walk in love as Christ did. And this begs the question of why. Why do we do this? It's painful. It takes all of our time. I don't want to open myself up to that pain again. I'd rather close myself off. I'd rather not forgive that person. And we do it for the same reason that Christ did it, for the salvation of sinners. You see, Christ lived in a way so to always bring glory to the Father, to point people to God. Now, obviously, I feel like I still need to say it though, we can't atone for someone's sins. Jesus already took care of that. But the way in which he gracious, we graciously love them selflessly, unconditionally, sacrificially can point them to the one who has already atoned for their sins, who has already paid their debt, who has already paid their price. This means we must walk in love, speak the truth to them. What is the truth? It is the gospel. You see, I don't care how good of a person you think you are in here today, your life does not preach the gospel by itself. It backs it up, but your words preach the gospel to those who hear it. Your life shows them that it's real, shows them you really believe it. Just like your identity is not set by your behaviors, it just shows it and reveals it. The gospel must come from our lips. It must come from our mouth. We must say the words of the gospel because those are what have the power to save. The way we live simply bolsters the message as being real. But to truly walk in love means we must proclaim the gospel message with our lips. We must value the friend above the friendship. It's really difficult to do sometimes. 
but we must care about them. So this person may reject me. This person, this may put a a wall in our relationship. This may be an obstacle we never get past. They may write me off and never talk to me again. But I got to value the friend and their soul and their eternity more than the here and now, more than the friendship, more than the comfort, more than being being loved and liked by them. The ultimate, gracious, selfless God God-directed way we can love is this. As imitators of God, we must boldly proclaim the message that Jesus came proclaiming, that he came to seek and to save the lost. May our words speak in love. May our lives back that up and be a walking demonstration of that love to others. But may we love as Christ loved us. May we imitate God. May we walk in love just as Christ loved us. Pray with me.